poetry is an expression of your thoughts and feelings. That's it. That's that's all poetry is. If you have thoughts and feelings, and if those thoughts and feelings are about being in the world, then you also have a responsibility to other humans who have thoughts and feelings. Welcome to The Palette, Season 3, Episode 3, the first episode of 2018. Welcome back, y'all. Ooh, it's been a while, hasn't it? Really has. We missed you guys. I've already broken each and every one of my New Year's resolutions by this time, except the one where I promised to send a handwritten love letter to the entire cast of The Black Panther. Aw, I'm so happy to be co-hosting with someone who has such clear, defined goals and direction. I try. In all seriousness, though, you have been up to some pretty incredible things in the new year. Can you tell our listeners what you've been up to? In February, I produced and moderated a performance and conversation event called Little Tiny Walls. It was a panel discussion about DACA. I was there, and it was a moving and wonderful experience. A lot of things that come up in that performance and in the discussion you had during that event are topics that we'll explore here in this episode. Nima, let's talk about what you've been up to in February. Well, the Alumni of Color Conference just happened here at the Ed School, and they allowed me to make these huge two feet by four feet coloring pages of events and protests that have happened throughout history. Uh, And I got to highlight a lot of the really amazing things that happened here at Harvard, like protesting Betsy DeVos, marching for Puerto Rico, and protesting against the DACA repeal. They were totally beautiful works of art. I took a picture of some of them because I was just so proud of Nima during the AOCC conference. You can check those out on our Instagram page. We've been loving interacting with you guys there at at Palette Podcast. For this episode, we are multiplying our powers by joining up with two other amazing fellow students from Hugsy. It's basically an ed school love fest. Good feels and vibes all up in here. Hell yes. Emmanuel is one of our guests on this episode. He's in the learning and teaching program. And Tony, our other guest, is in the arts and education program with Joss and I. Are we missing any other crucial details about these two? Oh, just that they're both poets who have graced basically all of Boston with their lyrical genius and amazing teaching abilities. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait for y'all to hear about these wonderful gentlemen. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us, you two. It's really good to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for coming today and talking with us. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. This is a pleasure. Let's just start out with very basic, like, what is your name and what do you do? I like that you smiled while saying that. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, what do you do? <laughs> what I like is your life? That, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is your meaning? <laughs> your um, life source. <laughs> Yeah, um, I can start because I started talking. Uh, my name is Emmanuel Opong Yabua. I think generally I identify as wearing two hats, which are like the poet hat and the educator hat. And sometimes I wear two hats at once, sort of like mm-hmm. that little illustrated children's book, with the Man with Many Hats. Uh, and those are the two that I frequent the most. I do other things. Those are like the, the big wheelhouses. How long have you been wearing the artist hat and the teaching hat? I'm I'm like pretty young um, and I, I'm reminded of that a lot just because of like what education looks like. There are lifelong educators and then there are mm-hmm. younger educators. I've been writing since really middle school and been identifying as a poet uh, primarily since like college, so like early 20s. And in terms of education, I my first job out of college was actually working with Tony and I'm sure we'll get to that at some point in the podcast at a middle school as a tutor. 
And so I've been teaching, working in education in the last four years. And before that, like I tutored and worked with students in informal poetry communities, opportunities. But yeah, I've been teaching and poeting mainly, at least in the city of Boston for the last four years. Awesome. Thank you, Tony. There's awesome. so much love around I this know. table right now. No, I'm just so. smiling and into this microphone. So Maybe hear the smiles in everybody because yeah. we all go to school together. I have this right now. Um, I'm Tony De La Rosa. Um, I would say very similar to Emmanuel, poet and educator. I come first as an educator, then a poet, which is interesting. Um, I zoom out after my years writing and kind of curating events. I come from also of an event planning background as well so I feel like I'm more comfortable with like curator uh, I keep hearing that I did a project in arts and education and if I what that what is our identity which is continuous and like in flux all the time but I think I'm sitting with political and cultural curator and broker at this point I'll just leave it at that because it's just it's it feels that it holds so much of the things that are encapsulated in the realm of education being an educator, being a poet, a writer. I can't just say I'm a poet because there's so much in being a poet that I don't feel like I have yet um, and I'm working towards. And there's so much we do that's beyond poetry. And how long have you been at those tasks? Um, I started formally educating in 2011, 2012. I've taught in Japan when I was an undergrad. Um, I was in Japan for a while teaching English and that's when I really fell in love with teaching. Even if I didn't know the language really well, there was something about the exchange. I was learning a lot from the kids, and I, I was like, oh, I just love this work. Uh, I love working with youth, specifically with middle school and high school. Uh, there's a lot to learn from them there as well. Um, and then I, uh, I've been educating since, uh, informally, informally, both charter and public. Um, zooming back, going backwards in terms of writing poetry, I started in about when I was like 14. I saw my sister write, and she was a beautiful writer. She's she's still a beautiful writer. She just is taking a break, but she got published when she was younger, and I was in love with her work, and I was like, what can I do to do this? I know that I need to do this work with you, uh, and I followed her shadow a little bit, and then when I got to teaching, I founded um, this spoken word youth organization called Indie Pulse in Indianapolis when I did Teach for America, and we formalized ourselves into a 501c3. 501c3. Does this involve robots? Not exactly. It's a term used to define a tax-exempt not-for-profit organization. Basically, this means that Tony's organization is now recognized as a nonprofit. Go Tony! We scaled it out here. I was like, you know what, since I'm moving out here to Boston, let me try to do this wherever I'm at because this is what I live for at this point. Like, I live to work with youth and um, that exchange between them being the teacher and I'm being the learner is a beautiful moment. So I've just been doing that since I started the teaching force as well. Amazing. Thank you. And Tony, you kind of started getting into this, so maybe we'll start with Emmanuel. What do you think the motivation behind your work is? I mean, I, I write things because I want to and because I find it sometimes urgent and life-giving and useful and because it's fun and like gives me joy and sharing work with like a community of people and building community around sharing work is fun and gives me joy. In terms of like education, 
I just like kicking it with young people. I think young people are cooler than older people yes. and like Cosine. have a lot more to offer the world. <laughs> and like, I don't know. I don't think that's an unpopular opinion, but like, I think youth know about their lives and about their experiences. Um, and I think I get a lot from working with young people and like talking to young people and like they regularly check me. I feel like I learn more about myself and more about the world and hopefully like offer them an opportunity to like express themselves and talk about their lives and their realities in ways that they might not be familiar with yet. So I think that answered your question. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I have a small follow up question on that because you mentioned when you were introducing yourself that you're young. Yeah. How old yeah. are you? Um, 24. I have to think about that sometimes, but yeah. Okay. 24. How do you navigate between working with the youth and being young? When did that switch for you or when yeah. did that cross over? Does that have to do with the teaching identity? I, I guess. I think also like there was a point in college where I was just like, I guess I'm an adult now okay. and I'll try to do adult things. Was it a laundry related moment? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I was living on my own. I was like paying a rent, you know, cooking food for myself. As it relates to young people, I feel like that transition has been sort of difficult in ways. I think that as a younger teacher, that is a confidence problem that you have to deal with, knowing that you are not that much older than the youth that you're working with, but also knowing that like the experiences you've had put you in a position of authority, like a teacher being in the position of a teacher is a position of authority over you. Just the fact that the way that you think in high school is generally different than the way that you think as you get older, which is not to undermine the experiences of youth. One of the most important learning moments I had this summer was a ninth grader uh, I was teaching summer school and like one of the things that they wrote was that I hate it when adults say you'll get this when you're older, that you'll get some form of understanding or you don't understand something right now because you are young. And that was a youth who had gone through a pregnancy and a miscarriage. That is not necessarily a thing you would know interacting with them on a regular basis, but that's a very valid experience that she had had. She had handled that maturely. I let my kids know how old I am and I still think I have something to impart to them, and I'm, I think that relationship is okay. I talk about my brothers all the time. I really love my brothers, but I think having three younger siblings, the way that I relate to students is often similar to the ways that I relate to my brothers, which is like, I'm older than you. I'm the boss, but you're goofy and hilarious and like smart, and I appreciate you. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, what about the same uh, motivation question? You talked about being a curator. Mm -hmm. What's the impetus behind that development? I love seeing, I love providing spaces, not being the center of the space itself. I like seeing myself, you know, getting highlighted, you know. That's just me being shameless and feel like not seeing enough Filipinx Americans in spaces of power or voices out there, even though we know we bring an enormous amount of wealth, everyone, every culture does, to, the, to any other space. But I think that the impetus comes from just knowing that there's a lot of other people on the stage too right now. And uh, youth need a, a we, we know that youth want and crave and desire a space to express themselves whole, more holistically um, than they are given opportunity to do so because of the pre-K through 12 experience is very, very um, boxed in. Um, that's nothing new to anyone at this table. Primarily... I would do it in third spaces right after school. Okay, what is a third space? 
And also, what is a first and second space? Excellent question. Backing it up, the first space would be the home environment where a student actually lives. Second space would be their school. So a third space encompasses any environment outside of those two. For example, a church, a club, an organization, a local community center. I'm at this point now where I'm trying to bring art in the forefront where it needs to be. We're in this reductionist era right now where art is symbolically losing its life, right? Like this whole idea of like hip-hop is dead is like coming back and resurfacing traumatically for a lot of us artists. And the idea that art is dead, right? It's, it's not. And we're trying to provide spaces where we can showcase that it's not dead. It's quite the opposite. It's quite alive. Uh, when I say curation, I'm trying to find those, those spaces and times for people who are policymakers or people who don't normally engage in art to do that work. In order for them to actually like value it, sometimes they have to experience it. And I think that's actually most of the times they have to experience it and see what it does. I have one question. I'm not very familiar with the, this distinction that's come up. You both introduced yourselves and identified yourselves as poets. If I was introducing you, I might say spoken word artist. Maybe there's no difference, but could you educate me on when you would say you're a poet versus when you would say you're a spoken word artist and why you might use one term or the other. Maybe it's arbitrary, but I imagine it has some meaning behind it. I don't I don't know if I always think about it. I feel like what I do is throw quiet shade at people who uh, <laughs> like shade as opposed to that loud shade. <laughs> yeah. shade, the quiet um, shade yep. At people who like distinguish between spoken word and poetry as really distinct or rigid categories. Because I think what has happened is that spoken word as it exists today emerged from a lot of youth countercultures and like mm -hmm. hip hop culture predominantly and from spaces of people, common people, like working people getting together and for a fixed or unfixed amount of time sharing poems to other people. And in that space, there, as in any art form, became like certain voices that you would hear commonly, a slam voice sort of developed. I am saying my poem dynamically. And <laughs> like yeah. uh, being said, like people were coming to the stage and to the mic from like all different avenues of life. Older people, younger people, femme people, mask people, non-binary conforming people all coming to the mic to share their stories. And what they were sharing was poetry. Because they were sharing it through vehicle of a mic, it was spoken word. And I think that is a distinction. But in terms of the process of writing in and of itself, I don't set out to write a spoken word poem. Mm -hmm. I just write the poem. And sometimes the poems that I write are better suited to be spoken out loud on a mic because maybe they involve different voices. Maybe I'm trying to do something specifically on the stage that I can't accomplish on the page. When I think of that distinction, I think of it more so as in like, what is the work I have written and like, what is it trying to accomplish? Can it exist on the page and on the stage? Is there some work that's just more suited to like being in a space where I can get response and reactivity to the words that I'm saying like immediately in the moment? I think the image of slam poetry is not necessarily what slam poetry exists as and functions at today. Commonly, we're still dealing with the same tropes around slam poetry that existed in the 90s, but like the art form has evolved and changed mm. in so many crucial ways. Mm -hmm. Denez Smith is the winner of 
national book prizes and is just like an amazing writer has a book that is on the top of every list of Mm. best poetry this year also is a poet that began writing in college slam poetry circuits so like what does that mean Denez Smith is a wonderful poet and published author. I actually saw him perform live in Oakland a few years ago. It was a poem called Dinosaurs in the Hood, which should give you a little glimpse into how awesome he is. If you've never heard or read his poetry, I cannot recommend it enough. And I don't want to pronounce anything about what that says about poetry as a whole, but I think that having these arbitrary categories, which I think are oftentimes to say like the form of artwork that this group of people are making isn't as legitimate or isn't as formal as like this other form of artwork that people are making is some not good stuff. And so those are my immediate feelings around those two terms. I'm trying to find the words that are more inclusive because these are just fixed terms that are just created, you know, that we didn't create them, but you know, we're ascribing to because it helps other people who don't understand the art itself and how fluid it is. I, I think I come more from a writer's standpoint. I came from writing more journalistic pieces. And then um, when I write poetry, um, I never intended to be a spoken aspect of it. I just was inspired. When I first got into spoken word or poetry, I, I, I learned about Saul Williams. Rapper, singer, songwriter, writer, poet actor, Saul Williams is an overall badass, multifaceted artist. He's a New York City native, and to use Emmanuel's language, he wears a lot of hats. To give you a clue, he's performed with everyone from Erica Badu to Allen Ginsberg, and his work is unapologetically radical and political. Definitely check him out. And that was, uh, I remember bringing that up too. And you're like, you like Saul Williams? I'm like, that was my age when I came in. I was like, oh, that was like four or five years before. Okay. So that was my muse for a while because he was like, he was an activist. I was learning a lot from him outside of undergrad. I was like, oh man, this undergrad, I'm not feeling any of this work right now. Like in these poetry courses, I'm not feeling it because it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of white uh, Eurocentric voice I'm learning from. And it just doesn't vibe well with what I'm used to, uh, there's something about spoken word and like the, the, at least what Saul was doing with sonic sound that um, spoke to me differently than just language poetry or just like looking at language the entire time or content. You know, sometimes just the sound gave me gave me a, a guttural and emotional reaction. And I feel like that when I start describing this kind of writing, it doesn't fit sometimes in the just poetry or just these categories that were presented for us. But I would say now that I've been going and writing more and getting asked to perform, people will ask me to write a spoken word poem. And sometimes they'll want to vet the poem itself to see if, what it sounds like. And that's dangerous to hear. But I, I'm pretty strong in terms of like, no, I want it to be this way because I know if I water it down, it's going to be inauthentic, obviously. I feel like because I've gotten in this, this realm of spoken word poetry, uh, I'm writing for that. When I think about zooming out for this question, I think of Eve. Ewing. Dr. Eve Ewing is an essayist and poet from Chicago. She's also not so low-key the patron saint of this podcast. We love Dr. Eve Ewing. She's written a lot of incredible work, and for now, we'll stick to highlighting her first collection of poems, essays, and visual art. It's called Electric Arches. It's beautifully written. It has a lot of Afrofuturist themes, so if you're still riding the high of our last episode, you're definitely going to want to check it out. We'll include a link to the piece that Tony references on our site. 
she wrote this one short article uh, about a student who approached her about the The Notebook Kid piece, right? And it sounds like a spoken word piece, but her intention was not for it to be a spoken word piece. Just how as it was read, it sounded like one. Her questioning was, why does people automatically think just because of the sound, it, it is a spoken word piece, which then goes into this, it, it lodges itself in this, oh, it's just something to be said out loud and not printed. It's not part mm. of the canon. And she like brought that in and it really opened my mind. I was like, yo, this is what we, that's, this is the work, this is the work that we're doing. The writing that we're producing, even naturally producing, uh, not intended for spoken word, is stuff that America is not ready for and they should be ready for. Our youth, the youth that we work with, um, are writing these amazing psychedelic it takes more than just intellectual capacities, like emotional intelligence coming in, spiritual intelligence, resistance intelligence, like going to this piece and people just demean it for like, oh, it's just a spoken word piece. That's, that's every time I hear this question, I think about that article that Eve said. I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to try and zoom out as much as possible whenever I have a moment to talk about it. Just give some justice for those people who don't like the label on it, you know? And I to what you said, citing Eve, like think one of my problems was like limiting something to the category of spoken word is that there's always been like a spoken or oral tradition to poetry. The Odyssey is spoken word or yeah. like the Iliad is spoken word and those are canonized and like taught regularly in schools and like we write dissertations on those documents. And so how is a poem that's performed contemporarily today like on an open mic or on like a poetry slam different than that it's part of the social context and it's also part of how we make and share culture and stories it speaks to value i think and like how the optics of value is so misconstrued and when people see a spoken word they see as just to be simple lesser than the written word at this point i feel like we're having to like hard time explaining no this is not how it is like we we want to defend it because there's so much more to it Thank you so much. We we only have so much time and I don't want to get away from the work that you're actually doing with young people. And I think maybe that could include the backstory of your connection, which I don't think I actually know fully. So if you could tell us literally what your work looks like with young people today and if there is an explicit or maybe it's more implicit activist orientation to that work, how explicit you are about that, how does that come through? Sure. Currently, I work mainly with high school age youth. So I work with 11th graders on a day-to-day basis. And then beyond that, I work at the ICA. I co-coach there. We're the performance art crew, uh, also the SLAM team at the ICA. And I co-coach that with my friend and fellow teaching artist, Bebo. The ICA is Boston's very own Institute of Contemporary Art. It's a pretty amazing space with art exhibitions, screenings, and an incredible education program. Case in point, Emmanuel teaches there. Facts. And then I help do some coordinating around Louder Than a Bomb, which is an annual youth poetry festival that happens in Boston each year. And I also slightly older than the group of folks I usually work with, co-coach the Northeastern Poetry Slam team uh, with my friend J.R. Mahong. How I know Tony, though, is around Louder Than a Bomb, which you can get into. You can sort of explain what that is. Yeah, uh, I'm going to, we met earlier at at Match Mm -hmm. uh, Public Charter School, Middle School. 
it was just interesting because when I was interviewing, my one of my interview questions when I, we got to interview who would be our like teaching assistants and um and he started off that way and I was interviewing I was like, I just want to start a slam because teaching comes secondary. I want to actually do work with poetry. So that was my interview question and he was just like he just gave the answer because he's done this work before. And uh, I was like, all right, we're working together. We come together. We're working together at Match. Um, it's a school in Jamaica Plain. And we throw in, in classrooms, spoken word, open mics. And then we've been doing that since 2015, which is cool. Um, and work prior to, obviously. But I first met Emmanuel that way. And he was a, a along the spoken word or performance poetry scene. Like I felt like he was a, a lot more along that aspect. So he would really help with this, the performance aspect. And... I felt really comfortable with my writing, so I was like, all right, this is perfect, so we can co-coach middle school kids. Uh, he works with high school and college students now. I work with primarily middle school, and I think I'm going to go lower, too. I think I'm, I see, I'm seeing elementary youth, and I'm like, let me get the young kids, right? Um, so I run uh, something called Boston Pulse. It started in a little classroom, but now it's becoming an elective course at some places. Uh, we started today at Codman Academy, which is cool to be in the school day. It's validating. Um, we're still at Match Middle School and then Match High School to work with their slam poetry team as well. So yeah, that's how we met. Uh, LTAB is a big competition in spring where we come together um, and we coach our individual teams, middle school and high school, mostly high school. And uh, we compete. The framing behind it is it's not about the points. It's about the poetry. Poetry, right? And they, they always say that. And it's from Adorable. like... Adorable. It's, it's, <laughs> it's our call and response. But, you know, sometimes because youth put so... Many times, actually, youth put so much passion and so much tears, blood, sweat, and tears in this work that sometimes it is for them in a form of validate, in the, in, in the idea of invalidating their work, it's sometimes very just competitive for them and they want to treat it very seriously so i think it's both it's both and right it's competition but also a great experience to build community so i'll leave it at that i mean it happens it's happening in april this year and so like ltab is a competition but it's also a festival where mm -hmm. youth are coming from all over the state of massachusetts to be together and to meet each other and to share their work Around this idea of art and like what art can do, the festival begins, I think this year, April the 7th, was Crossing the Street. It's named Crossing the Street. LTAB started originally in Chicago, and there's a whole documentary about that. And so the idea was to get different folks from the city of Chicago to like talk to one another. And so that's why the festival begins with that initial event. So all the teams are not competing. They're just together workshopping with adults in the poetry scene and also meeting one another and doing activities to build community. So that's that's how we start. And then from there, there are prelims, semifinals, and finals. The idea is that youth are meeting together for the purpose of sharing their stories and their art. And we assign points to it as an arbitrary thing to like get people to fill the rooms, but it's really about those youth. It's really about showcasing and highlighting and valuing their experiences. Is that activism in and of itself? I heard organizing yes. in some ways giving yes. youth voice. I'm starting to really think about it as like a public hearing every time this happens. Wow. And people need to see it as a public hearing every time of youth convening, a youth of color, marginalized youth, LGBTQIA youth, so on and so forth, gender non-binary youth. It's a public hearing. We have it in our schools, and it's a public hearing where admin come in, teachers come in, parents come in. So why not treat it that seriously, right, in my in that end? I do think policymakers, when they see it, it's like, you can really learn 
if you listen, you can really learn what youth are wanting and needing at these places in a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. Definitely. If you want to up your policies in here, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about homework. They're talking about their trauma that they're living in. They're talking about their parents. They're talking about school policies, cradle to prison pipeline, and the gamut of the issues that um, need to be heard and considered when creating school policies and after-school policies um, and just policies of, with interacting with youth. At any given time in your work, what makes you think that things are going well or not? I'll jump in with one, one that comes to mind immediately. I keep, this is, so I've been coaching um, some youth for the last three years and I just, I love seeing them grow. The idea of them coming back every time and wanting and calling me during school, even though I haven't spoken to them in a while, like, but the fact that they keep coming back for more is a beautiful measurement of like, oh, we have done some work and they want more. They need more because they're running into barriers or they're just not getting their fill um, in the spaces that they're in. I think like this question is hard for me to answer, mainly because I'm in the middle of a weird transition where like I'm going from working as a teaching artist, which I did the last two years, to being in the classroom full time. Uh, and so when I was working as a teaching artist, I would come in to lots of different schools, uh, working with like lots of different students on like a bi-monthly basis, really, and be the poetry guy for them for like two hours at a time or one hour at a time. And this is the thing that we're doing around poetry. I'm really excited about it. You're really excited about it. We're all really excited about it. Let's be excited about poetry for like <laughs> the time that we have together. That's different than with like being in the position of classroom teacher and like being with students every day. Mm -hmm. And so before, in terms of like whether or not things went well, it was like, did I get students to write something that made them see themselves? something in which they could mm -hmm. reflect themselves in that was my like measure of success and like did that I felt really good about the work I was doing in classrooms did students have conversations about things that they might not have gotten conversations about in the regular curriculum if I did that that mm -hmm. was something that I was yes. really happy about did I provide opportunities for like students to think about what it means to be human and like what it means to be human in the world with other humans that was like a measure of success now I'm still doing those things or attempting to do those things but it's harder mainly because I'm also trying to teach these skills that are aligned with the common core which are important but are not as intrinsically valuable to me as the humanness of poetry and expression. 48 states came together to develop the common core. These are essentially state standards that outline what students K through 12 should know in English language arts and mathematics at the end of every grade. Today, 42 states and the District of Columbia have voluntarily adopted and are working to implement these standards, which are designed to ensure that students graduating from high school are prepared to take credit-bearing introductory courses in two- and four-year college programs or enter the workforce. Many teachers, however, are not fans of Common Core. Rigid standards like these advocate for a quote-unquote one-size-fits-all attitude in school systems. On a daily basis in terms of like, did I do good by my students? Did I do good by my youth? It's like, is this classroom one that they feel safe and comfortable in? And am I providing them with opportunities to learn? Wonderful.
so amazing. I'm just, I'm sitting back. I forgot that I was hosting because I'm just taking it in. Yeah, we are taking it in. Clearly, with spoken word artists, can we just like talk about how beautifully you all speak? You're like voices, the tenor. So blessed here on the palette. <laughs> Amber, the tenor. <laughs> Amazing. This is incredible. We really appreciate you guys sharing your, your teaching experiences, um, sharing your youth work experiences, your personal artistic paths to these roles with us. You've answered our questions for the time being. I feel like we could have we could go even deeper into some of the performance versus word aspects that was incredibly interesting to me and just what becomes valuable whether it's the fact of performance or whether it's the the page I'm gonna have to sit and think about that for for a little while we really appreciate you guys being on the show today is there anything else that you want to add or follow up on or re-say or clarify I would say I keep thinking the entire conversation keeps me thinking about and in my current stasis of writing the like the Paulo Freire I think at least once a day, I hear the name Paolo Freire referenced at the ed school. You're totally right, Joss. For those of you who don't know, he's a Brazilian educator and philosopher who wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's basically our Bible here. Paolo Freire is known for talking about the banking model of education, which treats education like a transaction instead of a more democratic and co-creative experience. AKA students are empty vessels waiting to receive transmitted knowledge deposited by teachers. Ugh, I feel like I'm in class. That's enough of that. This idea of like, if the system does not permit dialogue, it must be changed, right? Like that has been living with me this year. And I've been trying to that invoke that into my poetry because this is a conversation, right? If our work is not starting the conversation, uh, whether it's an argument, a debate, or an agreement, or just a celebration, then I'm suspicious of the work right now because I know there's more power to the work as well. And I, I understand there's, there's pedagogy that is just straightforward. I just need to tell my story, right? I think I'm moving towards a, a, a space where, and I'm seeing this happen in your work too, we're trying to get the audience back in when we're doing our spoken word pieces at least so they can hear and they can snap, they can communicate, so they can actually listen and be a part of the experience as well, not just get this banking feeling from, from just hearing one side and then, well, we're done, you know? I'm I'm thinking again, or like coming back to perseverating is a fun word. Uh, that this year too. <laughs> <laughs> this question of like activism and like where activism comes up in poetry work with students, and I guess for me, doing poetry has always been linked to activism, at least in the communities that I learned to identify as a poet in. Those two have always been inextricable. At college, with uh. Uh, shout out to Devin Samuels, who was like the person who like berated me until I finally ended up joining the Poetry Slam team at UConn. Our work on campus was connected to finding opportunities where we could workshop with local high school students, was connected to allying with different student unions and like being able to send poets out to perform on campus. We showed up in spaces when other folks needed us. That was always an important part of the work. And I think, like, the Boston poetry community is one in which the youth are really highlighted and important. And I feel like in a blessed moment in which, like, youth poets that I was working with last year are now, like, in the adult scene and taking on adult roles and also reaching back to teach and support other youth. 
And I think the educators in the Boston poetry scene, people like Phoebo, people like Portia, people like Upa, Sinaida, who started the Feb Slam recently, and so many other folks are and really... Andrine, who started, helped co-found that as well, who's a yeah. student. Yeah, Andrine, Kofi, what? like... There are so many names I could throw out, and I really apologize for, like, not... Not including all yeah, of them. <laughs> but, like, there are so many individuals who really fundamentally care about people. Like, Portia Oleiwola has this definition of poetry, which she uses regularly, which is poetry is an expression of your thoughts and feelings. That's it. That's That's all poetry is. If you have thoughts and feelings, and if those thoughts and feelings are about being in the world, then you also have a responsibility to other humans who have thoughts and feelings. Uh, Moral responsibility. Yeah, and it's like uplifting those people. And so like, I feel like the work of writing has to be connected to community. Like, I care a lot about, like, what you have to say on the page, and I care a lot about how well you can perform your poem, but I care even more about, like, how you are doing as a person and, like, how you are, like, connecting to other people in the world. Poetry is amazing, but I think what's even more amazing is, like, what we build around poetry. Mm -hmm. Like, I think of community as a fire that we are, Mm -hmm. like, literally, like, building, putting in firewood, burning smoke exhaust being worn by being able to do other things around like it is generative to be able to get together with people and to be able to share stories and to be able to take something away from that that yields something else activism and poetry i think at least the way that i've learned them are one and the same thank you so much i can't think of any better way to end that was incredible thank you for offering that beautiful definition and extended metaphor and everything um Uh, we're lucky (laughs) we're so lucky i just feel blessed to be going to school with you guys um and to call you peers and colleagues so thank you so much for coming on today and being part of this thank you thanks for having us thanks for having us How on earth did we end up going to school with these wonderful humans? I don't even know how we got this lucky. Big thank you to Tony and Emmanuel for joining us on the podcast and helping us create such an awesome conversation and vibe today. If you would like to learn more about the organizations and events that Tony and Emmanuel mentioned, please take a look at the blog section of our website, palettepodcast.com. We have more than a few relevant links and videos for you all to explore there. Definitely check it out. It'll keep you busy until our next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.